Um, have you ever gotten something in the mail and on the outside of the envelope it says response requested? You ever gotten something like that? It's funny, I actually have been working on this concept for a while, and I got one of those this week. You ever had one? I'm just curious. You can do this. I want to see if we, because I'll go back and explain it, what mail is, first of all, if you're wondering. So, because you know, if you're getting something paper in that box that's out at the end of your driveway, and it says response requested, you know it really doesn't matter. It's paper, right? But back in the day, or how about this? Did you get an email, like a work-related email, and in the subject line, or in the first line of the body of the email, or maybe both, it says, response requested. Gotten one of those? And you know you drop everything you're doing and respond to that email, right? What we're going to talk about today certainly requires a response from us. In fact, in the passages we're going to read this morning, there are a handful of different responses uh, to the very same event. Now, I know we're here today to celebrate Easter, right? And to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which is really at the very center of our faith. It's the foundation of our hope. But before we get to celebrate Easter, I think we need to sit in the pain and the anguish and the hopelessness that is Good Friday. So I want to take a couple minutes and talk about that. The thing about Good Friday is it gives us an opportunity, or maybe kind of forces us, to reflect on what Jesus did on the cross. And this isn't the most comfortable thing to do. It's not the most comfortable place to spend any time. We'd rather talk about resurrection, right, than torture and sacrifice and crucifixion. And I get that. But the reason we need to pause and spend a little bit of time right here is because Good Friday demands a response from us. The cross demands a response from us. It just does. There's so many reasons that it demands a response, and one of them is just the story of who Jesus was in history, the significance of his death on the cross, like in history. In the scripture, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have accounts of Jesus' life, and they tell the story of his life as it unfolded as Jesus walked on earth. Then in addition to that, you have historians like Josephus and Thallus, who outside of Scripture also wrote accounts of this man, Jesus, who walked the earth, who died, who people claimed rose again, so that Jesus is an actual historical figure, that he walked on this earth, he, he had these experiences that people wrote about, he had made these teachings that people repeated, and because of what we know about him just so far, based on the historical account, because of what had been written about him up to this point, his death on the cross demands a response. It's like just the sheer audacity of the cross. Like the idea that our sin separates us from God, that He is holy, newsflash, we are not. I hope that didn't burst your bubble, okay? That we know there's something wrong in the world. We know that. We have this innate sense that something's broken in our world. And God wanted to make a way for us to have relationship with him. So he gave his one and only son to live a perfect life, to introduce this idea of a heavenly kingdom finding its way into our lives here on earth, to introduce a new way to be human, a new way to relate to God himself. And because he was such a threat to the established religious and political leaders of the day, he was arrested and convicted and beaten and tortured and ultimately died on that cross. And then I think since for a lot of us church people, we're somewhat familiar with the Old Testament scripture and we know that humanity 
is in a fallen condition. And that without a perfect, final, once and for all sacrifice, we'll never truly live in restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus offers himself to be that perfect, final sacrifice because only Jesus is able to pay the price for our sin. It's only through the shedding of his blood that we can have forgiveness of sin. We can have a relationship with God now and into eternity. That kind of grace, that kind of love is just overwhelming. I mean, the audacity of it all. And the more you think about it, the more you sit in it, the more we learn about it, the more we let it get into our hearts, I think the more that we realize it demands a response. What I want to do for a few minutes is look at two people, two people who are up close and personal with Jesus while he's on the cross. And I want to look at how they responded. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, uh, we're well into the events of what we know as the Passion Week, the Last Supper, the betrayal by Judas, the trial, the beatings, all of that's already happened. And now we're in verse 32 of Luke 23. It says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, with Jesus. So two criminals were led out to be executed with Jesus. Now, these men were simply thieves. They were common thieves, okay? But at this time in history, under Roman occupation, the punishment didn't usually fit the crime. So even if you were simply a thief, the crime you committed like wasn't a violent crime, there's a good chance you'd be executed. And the most common form of execution at the time was crucifixion. Verse 33 says, when they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha in Aramaic or Calvaria in Latin, which is where we get the word Calvary, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, even as he's in excruciating pain on the cross, is practicing what he preached. He's loving his enemies. He's practicing and extending forgiveness. He's living out the values of the kingdom of God, even in his death. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. I love how detailed the story is. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. Like the crowd is mocking him now. They're really into it. Like if you really are the promised one, the chosen one, let's see it. Let's see you come down from that cross. Verse 36, the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. Then we see criminal number one in verse 39, one of the criminals hanging beside him. How does he respond? Says he scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. Like, like he just can't help himself. Like it, it, it's like he's hanging there. It's like he's hanging there on a cross himself, okay? Like get the picture. In a pretty humiliating and excruciating situation himself. And he gives in to the pressure of what's happening around him, that mob mentality. And all these people who are scoffing and mocking Jesus. And he joins in with them. Think about it. It's crazy. He's hanging on a cross himself. And he's like, if you're the Messiah, prove it. Prove it by saving yourself. Oh, and us too while you're at it. This man has no regard for Jesus. Like, he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He doesn't believe he's the promised Savior. He isn't interested in anything Jesus taught or lived out. Even if Jesus were to save him, if somehow he were to be rescued from the cross and survive to tell the story, he's not that interested in following Jesus afterwards. He's not interested in seeing uh, Jesus for who he really is. But it's like, if Jesus can get me out of a jam, like he'd be happy with that, right? I'd be that'd great with me, Jesus. If you can do this for me, that'd be great. It's like he's not acknowledging the claims of Jesus. He didn't see him as Savior. He didn't see him as king, but if he could like fix his present circumstances, he would really love it if he'd get him out of this jam. It's like, I know I haven't paid much attention to you. I saw the people following you around. I didn't pay much attention. I'm not sure how any of this works because um, I haven't been paying attention. But anyway, I've heard you've done some things. So if there's any way like you can get us out of, uh, get me out of this jam, like uh, I, I'd be great. I'd love it if you do that for me. And if we're honest, Sometimes we can see a little bit of that in ourselves, right? Sometimes it's, not, it's like we're not really following Jesus. We just want him to fix our situations from time to time. That's what this thief who's been condemned to die and is already well on his way to being executed, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a situation to be fixed. It's like, Jesus, I don't know who you are or anything about you, but I hear that what they're saying and that I hear what you said about yourself. And so if it's really true, like, could you get me down from this cross? I mean, that would be great, Jesus. I guess you could, like, you claim to be king or something. I see the sign there. But when it comes to my life, you know, it's like, it's like he's more like a, a king in waiting, right? Because like right now, I don't know if you can identify with this. Like, I prefer to be on the throne of my life. But at the same time, if you could sprinkle a little Jesus on my life, like some fairy dust or however that works to get me out of this situation I'm in right now, right? Like if you could fix my relationship, you could fix my job, fix my kids, fix my money, fix my health thing, fix my addiction. Like Jesus, if you could just get me out of this jam, like I would definitely take that. Verse 40, the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? Like in other words, don't you have any reverence for what's happening here? See, this other criminal is also up close and personal. But he sees that there's something different about Jesus. That as Jesus is dying next to him on this cross, nailed to his cross, and the blood and the mess and the pain of all that, he sees that there's something different. There's something divine about all of this. And he says, verse 41, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Like, man, don't you get it? Like, this guy is innocent. Don't you have any reverence for what's happening here? Don't you sense what's going on? This man doesn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. To which, to which we would say, like, do you really? I mean, you're a thief, right? Like, you might deserve to be punished, but do you deserve to die? And that's a conversation for another day. But then he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kingdom? Where'd that come from? What's he mean, kingdom? Like, how does he know about the kingdom? Oh, because it said in the little sign above Jesus, King of the Jews? I'm going to say probably not. I think this was a revelation. I think this was an epiphany kind of thing. Maybe he'd been in the crowd at some point along the way to hear Jesus teach. But the teachings of Jesus never really found their way into his heart and into his life. And now he's had this like spiritual aha moment. And he's like, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wherever you're going from here, that's where I want to be. What's so interesting here is that this, this criminal figured out that this Jesus who's next to me, he's not interested in just fixing my situation. He isn't here to fix me. He's here to save me. 
He isn't here just to fix what's going on. He's here to forgive me. This isn't about getting me out of a jam. This is about something so much bigger than that. Like, I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. I'm not innocent. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I need him to step into my situation, not just to fix my situation, but to forgive me, to redeem me, to restore me. I want that. Verse 43, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus, even on the cross, extending grace, extending mercy, that in his last hour, this criminal has met Jesus and found and experienced forgiveness, and he's found salvation, and his soul has been restored. Listen, Jesus isn't that interested in fixing you for a moment. He's interested in saving you for a lifetime. He's interested in forgiveness for eternity, in a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father beginning now and into eternity. He loves you so much that He wants to bring forgiveness to you so that you can have a relationship with Him. That's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness does. It restores relationship. It's not just fixing up your life for a moment. It doesn't mean like good ideas or like tips for life or like self-help and self-improvement and that's all fine but like this is why the gospel means good news. The good news is that you are forgiven, that the brokenness that you feel on the inside can be healed because of what Jesus did on the cross and a relationship with our creator, heavenly father is possible. This is why we need to pause and think about Good Friday. It's a big deal. Like, it's such a big deal that it demands a response. So the question is, how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? What's your response going to be in light of the cross? I know a lot of people come to church, especially at Easter, and they feel like they don't measure up. Like, they're only here a couple times a year, and that's fine. We're happy to have you a couple times a year. And they look around at all these religious people, like somehow they're the only ones that come to church twice a year. But I know a lot of people come to church and they don't feel like they measure up. They don't feel like they're nearly as good and as holy and as godly as all the people around them as we look around the room. And sometimes that feeling of inadequacy comes from some hurt in the past. Maybe some dysfunction in your story. Maybe some poor choices on your part. Or maybe you're on the receiving end of someone else's poor choices. Those are all separate issues for another day. But sometimes we come to church on Easter Sunday and we feel so unworthy of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We feel this way because we're carrying around shame. We feel this way because we're carrying around unresolved sin. Maybe it's a secret sin, a sin that no one knows about. Or maybe it's something that everybody in your house knows about, but if anybody else ever found out, Maybe it's just like the way that you treat your kids or the way that you disrespect your spouse. Or maybe the sin you're carrying is something that you did years ago and maybe it's, a, maybe it's just like a way of life for you now and it's destroying you from the inside out. I don't know what it is, but the burden you're carrying today is sin that is unconfessed and unacknowledged and unresolved. And the cross of Jesus demands that we respond. I believe that as the for us, that's the only response that makes any sense, to bring the burden of our sin to the cross, to set it down, and to leave it there. Because we know, that, we know the nature of our Savior. Like Jesus will reach down and wrap his arms around you. You'll finally know what it is to walk in the freedom that comes with knowing you are forgiven. 
That's the audacity of the cross. That's the incredible gift of the cross. And we don't want to leave here today without responding to that. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. When you place your trust in Jesus, you are freed from the power of sin. So think about that. It means that you can bring the burdens of the sin that you've committed. Listen. And you can bring the shame of the sins that have been committed against you. And you can be freed from all of that. We can leave that burden at the cross. Maybe that's what response means today for you. We're going to take a couple minutes to listen to a song. And the singers and musicians are going to come. And I know for some of you, uh, you're hearing this today for the first time. Or may- maybe for the first time it's clicking, like it's actually clicking for you. And I know you've got a ton of questions. And you're, you're asking, but what about, you know, and that's fine. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But to you, I would say just stay engaged. Stay engaged with what the Spirit of God is speaking into your heart right now. After this song, Pastor Bob is going to come and finish the teaching, and we're going to sing some more songs. And at any point, listen, during the service, if we're up here talking or if we're singing, feel free to make your way over to that corner back there. We call it our prayer space. In the back of the room over there on the right side, just spend some time there in silent prayer. You can do that at any point during the service. Just let God speak to you there. I'm confident you'll find him saying, the price has been paid. Jesus' death on the cross, it's forgiveness that he offers because of that. And it's all been done with you in mind. Now we're going to listen to a song. This is a song we've been singing for for years here at Faith Community. It's a familiar song for a lot of us. But for right now, I'm going to ask you, as tempted as you are to sing, I'm going to ask you to just listen. Just listen to the words of the song. Sit in the meaning of these words. Let them wash over you. Maybe hear them with fresh ears and an open heart. Let's listen. Then Pastor Bob's going to come wrap up our teaching. To the cross I love. To the cross I cling. Of its suffering I do dream, of its work I do sing. Lord, it my Savior, both bruised and crushed, shown in God is love. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
20th century author and theologian C.S. Lewis said this, and I quote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important, end of quote. What Lewis is pointing out here is that Jesus, as a civilized Western fairy tale that we get together to kind of worship once or twice a year, well, that isn't what the life of Jesus actually points to. If his resurrection is true, as he claimed to be the Son of God, it means everything, and if it isn't true, it means nothing. So for the next few minutes, I want to look at three responses to the resurrection. 
Responses that were up close and personal also. And I think that for all of us, we can see ourselves in at least one of these three responses. Now, one of the first people to arrive at Jesus' tomb is Mary Magdalene. And when she finds the tomb is empty, she's shocked. So she hurries to tell the other disciples. And when Peter and John hear that the tomb is empty, they run to see it for themselves. And I have to add something right here. You see, the stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could walk out. But so seekers could walk in. And I find this stuff fascinating. In John's gospel, it says that John is faster than Peter, and so he wins the race. And since he's writing this, it's like he wants everybody to know he's faster than Peter. And I never yet have been able to figure out why that matters. When you find out, let me know. So here's what happens in John's gospel, chapter 20, starting at verse 3. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple, of course, that's John, he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. And by the way, that's very much in keeping with Peter's personality. He was act first, think later type of guy. Very impulsive. So he finally catches up to John, and for some reason, John is standing outside the tomb. I wonder why he didn't go in. Well, I think my answer would be because you just don't walk into a tomb. I mean, when was the last time you walked into a tomb? And in this culture they were in, for a Jewish man... To go into a tomb where there's a dead body, he would be deemed unclean, and he'd have to go through a process to be considered clean again and fit to be around other people, even to worship in the synagogues or, better still, in the temple. But it's like Peter has this sense that all of that is behind him now, <laughs> and he runs past John and goes into the tomb. I don't think he even slowed down. He didn't hesitate for a moment. Verse 6 says, he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. Verse 7, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. I can't imagine. Peter and John... They see these folded linens, linens that are left behind, and they're convinced. They believe. Suddenly, they begin to look on all the things that Jesus had said and going over the prophecies, maybe from hundreds of years before, about a coming Messiah. And it all starts to make sense. Things start to click for them. He is alive. Now, maybe today, you're remembering a moment like that, the day for you when it all made sense. Maybe it was recently. Or maybe you are on the make sense journey right now. Or maybe it was a long time ago. But here, through the eyes of, of Peter and John, we're reminded of the moment that it all came together for us and our lives have never been the same. Maybe today is that day for you. The moment that evidence becomes confidence. 
the moment you choose a relationship with a living, risen Jesus. I sure hope it is. Now, we also see a second response in John 20, this time from Mary. She'd been with Jesus and the disciples for two, probably close to three years. Now we find her outside the tomb, and when we find her, she's asking questions. I mean, she's pretty confused. In John 20, verse 11, we pick up the reading. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Do you know the theory the theory that says that Jesus' body was stolen, it's not a new theory. We see it in the scripture record right here with Mary. You see, her assumption isn't that there was a resurrection. She thinks that the body has been moved, and she's hanging out around the tomb looking for answers, and she gets them from these two angels. And as we get down to verse 14, we read that she turned to leave, after the angel spoke with her and saw someone standing there. You got it. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away... Tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. Jesus said, Mary. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which translated in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew means teacher, rabbi, teacher. And immediately she knew it was him. Mary's response to the resurrection at first Linger in the spot, ask lots of questions, figure it out for yourself. She's seeking answers outside the tomb. She doesn't want to go in. She just wants to look inside the tomb. But she isn't ready to go in because to go in would make her unclean, according to Jewish law. But she so desperately wants to understand all of this. But when she encounters Jesus there in the cemetery outside the tomb, the risen Jesus calls her by name changes everything for her. Now, my guess is you haven't been hanging out around a tomb. But maybe you've been hanging out around faith or around the church. Or maybe you've been hanging around someone in your life whom you know is a follower of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, you've been hanging around kind of quietly because you're seeking something more for your life. You're not quite sure what it is. But if you're honest, you haven't really personally, as of yet, encountered Jesus. Maybe it's the faith of somebody else. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and the faith you have or hold is, is only the faith of your parents, kind of 
kind of trying to carry on that tradition, but it doesn't really mean anything to you. And you've got questions, oh, a ton of them. Maybe you haven't dug very deep into what he really wants for you. Perhaps like Mary, it's time for you to turn and see Jesus. To look at the accounts of his life in Scripture. And to ask your questions of your friends. Turn your face towards him. You see, it's when Mary expresses her big questions that she finds him. And in that moment, the evidence that she sees, the angels, the empty tomb, the burial linens, all of a sudden, the evidence becomes her confidence as she turns to see Jesus. And she knows that death has been defeated, for her Savior lives. Now we have one more important response. John chapter 20, someone we haven't met yet at all. And this is what it says down in verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas hasn't seen Jesus. But his friends, the other disciples, they're all claiming that they've seen him. And I thought this, too, that after more than three years together, you'd think he might take them, their word for it, that, that, that he might default to believing his friends, that they weren't just making up a story. But nope. Because verse 25 says, but he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand in the wound in his side. That eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked where they were. But suddenly, as before, Jesus is standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus simply appears in a locked room. He just appears. And that's still not enough for Thomas. He still wants more proof. And Jesus knows what's going on in Thomas's mind. So he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put, put, take your hand and put it into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus told him, You believe because you've seen me. And blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Let me just say this about Thomas. He came with his doubts. Jesus will accept you with your doubts. Thomas comes with his need for evidence. He's not looking for fiction. He's looking for facts. And Jesus meets him there in that place. It's through seeking the evidence that he finds the truth about Jesus. And the evidence eventually becomes his confidence as well. Did you notice? He says, unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side, but 
But, 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 but then, when Jesus invites him to do just that, he doesn't do it. He's seen enough. He's seen all the evidence he needs. And he makes his declaration, my Lord and my God. And then he places all of his trust in Jesus. So if you're here today, or you're joining us at church online or whatever, and you're, and you're skeptical, honestly, you, you have a lot in common with those who were around Jesus at the resurrection. You fit into that crowd, and there's nothing wrong with that. See, Mary was seeking Jesus. Thomas was doubting the resurrection. But as they pursued Jesus, he met them at their point of need. He showed himself to them. He came to meet them right where they were. And they found their evidence, and then they believed. They couldn't deny him. They believed in him. And actually, after this, they would follow him at any cost, even unto death. Well, you know, friend, if you have questions like the people did on those days around the resurrection as they were going back and forth to the tomb, I want to invite you right now on behalf of Faith Community to a series called The Easter Experience with Kyle Edelman. Kyle Edelman is a pastor and an author, and he's created some great experiences for small groups. And in this six-part series, You'll have a chance to drill down on who Jesus really is. What is the evidence? Most importantly, what does it mean to you personally? And i got to say, we would love for you to join us for this series. Matter of fact, it launches next Sunday night, the 24th of April at 6 p.m. No need to sign up, no need to pre-register, just show up. Now here's the clincher. Christianity is confident that the resurrection really happened. It goes all in on an historical event, the resurrection. As C.S. Lewis said, Christianity can't be moderately important. It either is important or it isn't. And it all comes down to the resurrection. Now here's why this is really important for us to celebrate today. And why we need to stop and look at the resurrection. Because if it's true, it changes everything. It means for you and for me a transformed life. It means a relationship with God. It means eternity with our Heavenly Father. It means hope. And it means a future. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me who will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Wow. Do you want to know what real life is? Do you want to know what the point of it all is anyway? Do you ever sit and wonder about that? Do you want to know what the real gift is? Jesus says to us, I am. A relationship with me. Eternal life. Think of all this. The benefits. He said, my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life, and that's what you were designed for. So how do we respond today? Maybe you have taken the journey from evidence to confidence, but you've become distracted, maybe over the months or over the years, I don't know, but, but you've become distracted from what Jesus called the rich 
and satisfying life. Maybe your story is one where you came to faith in Jesus and the truth of the resurrection, but you've gone about life in a way that caused you to neglect the importance of your relationship with Jesus. Maybe today's a reminder for you, a day to celebrate what what really matters, a day to remember that we have hope in Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Or, Or perhaps you still find yourself stuck in doubt, in questions, in skepticism, sort of like Thomas. You're looking for the hard evidence. You have a ton of questions. You want to get them all answered. You don't want to move forward on this journey till you're ready. You want to know it's going to hold up. If you really give yourself to it, you want to know it's the real deal. And that totally makes sense, and I respect that. It made sense for the followers of Jesus immediately after the resurrection. Think of the emotions they were going through. And it makes sense now. It makes sense today. So we just want to encourage you one more time to join us for the Easter experience in our new Sunday night small group starting next Sunday. Bring your questions with you. We welcome that. Let's see where it takes us. You see, at the very least, as we open with today, it deserves a response. Or maybe for you, you're like Mary. You're hanging out outside, kind of out on the edges. You're seeking, you're peering in once in a while. You're looking down from a a distance away. You're wondering what's really going on. And now you're ready to turn, to turn to Jesus. You're ready to make your move from evidence to confidence, to start following him, and to make your faith your own today. Yes, today could be the day you discover forgiveness of sin and a relationship with Jesus for eternity. Think of it. Think of it. And as you turn towards him, Scripture makes this promise that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead will certainly live in you. I think we'd be missing an opportunity this morning if we didn't give you a chance to enter into this relationship with our Heavenly Father. That We've been talking about it, and we're going to be singing about it. But to let you experience the forgiveness that He alone offers. Maybe you've been coming here for a while. Maybe you've been considering this whole thing and you're, you're starting to understand things you've never understood before and you're beginning to realize it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus already did for me. Or maybe you haven't been here since last Easter or maybe Christmas, I don't know. But today you find yourself ready to embrace the truth of the resurrection and begin to experience the rich and satisfying life that he offers. So if you're here this morning and you're you're at that point, I want to give you a chance to have a moment in time. I want to give you a chance to make a decision to place all of your faith and all of your trust in Christ's death on the cross as the payment for your sin. I want to lead you in a prayer. And and this, just I want to say that this prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Prayer is just a way that we express our decision to put our faith in Christ. I'd like to lead you in a prayer. 
And so I'm going to ask that we bow our heads together. You can pray this with me silently right where you sit. You can change the words or you can use your own words. Just say something like this. Let's pray. Lord, I believe that I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus came to be my Savior. I believe that when he died, he died for my sins. I believe that I can have right standing with you through what Jesus did. I'm not trusting in my efforts. I'm not trusting in church participation. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm putting all of my faith in who Jesus is and what he did on my behalf. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. I accept your gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. God bless you. God bless you. If you prayed that prayer with me just now, or if you're at the point of some kind of spiritual decision in your life, I'd love for you to just take a minute Block out everything else. Fill out the connect card in the seat back in front of you and leave it in an offering box or, or even better yet, just come bring it to me after the service. I'd love to have a minute to talk with you about your decision, about where you are in your relationship with Jesus. Thank you. God bless you. Now let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for allowing us to engage today with you and with one another. Thank you for the touch of heaven upon this service. We sense your power here. We sense your presence. We know you're working in lives. We don't know what anyone really needs. We don't know the heart. We can't read the soul of another person. But we know that we hold in our hands the answer. So I pray today that souls will be stirred and that those who are being convicted will be brought to you. And those who are far off will be drawn closer. Those who have questions will come with their questions or their doubts because you are the answer. And I pray, God, that your name will be lifted up magnified and glorified in this place and in every heart. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.